to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Well, welcome back to Everyday Theology. Uh, Today, I've got the pleasure of a, a newer friend, but one who has become um, what we like to call spiritual friends with a group of us who, unbeknownst to me, kind of my rule of thumb is if you have a Wikipedia page, you must you must have written a lot. And that is clearly the case with my guest today, uh, my good friend, Ron Dart. Ron is a professor. He is a Renaissance person. I mean, clearly, if you look at his list of writings, which I hope you go and do, there's something for everyone there. Uh, he's written on so many different topics on just the human condition on, on where we are in life as people and even so many historical figures and literature. And uh, I could just keep going on and on, but Ron, thanks so much for being with me today. Oh, wonderful to be with you, Ron. If you wouldn't mind, um, you and I know each other a little bit here. We've been kind of a part of a group, a really life-giving group together for a while now, but uh, if you wouldn't mind letting my listeners know a little bit more about you, your history, your journey, anything you feel like you want to share with them. Well, I'm now in my 70s, so getting to the point where I'm retiring from over 35 years of teaching at um, university here in British Columbia, uh, particularly in the area of political science, philosophy, and religious studies. Uh, these have been topics which have interested me, and I think they're pertinent to anyone in their human journey for many decades. Um, in my early 20s, I lived with Francis Schaeffer at Labrie in Waymo for, from wow. 73 to 74, lived beside Oz Guinness at that time. And, oh, wow. Okay. And I did many treks into Geneva to bookstores and uh, uh, many other people, of course, up there at the time. Um, went on to do um, a BA in uh, literature and philosophy. Um, in Alberta, and then came to British Columbia, uh, in which I did a <clears throat> master's at Regent College in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. My interest was in patristic thought, and I did a thesis on John Cassian's 24 conferences, hmm. and went on to do a second um, MA on um, uh, origin in Anthony at University of British Columbia. Hmm. And then my PhD studies were at McMaster in uh, Ontario, uh, again, interested very much in the area of spirituality, um, theology, and politics, and uh, written uh, over 40 books that deal with literature, philosophy, politics, spirituality, broadly speaking, that humanist Renaissance tradition. Um, I've been on the national board of the Thomas Merton Society of Canada for over 20 years. Um, wow. I'm a Canadian contact for Evelyn Underhill, probably one of the most important Anglican uh, writers on spirituality in the yeah. first half of the 20th century. Um, done a lot of work on Bede Griffiths as well, who he and C.S. Lewis came to Christianity together. Um, Lewis dedicated Surprised by Joy to Bede Griffiths. I've done hmm. a book on, corresponded with Griffiths before he died in the early 90s. Uh, 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 there's so much more I could say, but we're not here to <laughs> talk about my erratic journey. <laughs> what No, what that really tells me is whatever this conversation we're going to have today, which you and I talked before hitting record and we're just going to let it go and kind of let it flow. But 
we're going to have, I'm sure, even just in that little snippet, there's a hundred questions I want to ask you that are beyond what we're going to talk about today. So I'm sure we'll do another podcast because, you know, thank you for our listeners. You know, Ron kind of carved out some time before his vacation uh, to talk with me. So, you know, Ron, thanks so much even just for doing this today, but hopefully we'll have you back and we'll talk about all those other things. <laughs> today, though, we want to talk about, and and it's, you know, at the risk of beating a dead horse, that's a terrible phrase, but I grew up in the South and that's one we used a lot. Um, we, I want to talk about, especially because you've written so much about politics and, and religion and, and the blending of the two and, and how they work together, how they don't work together. But what's unique and hopefully unique for our, our listeners is that while most of my guests have been from the United States, you being in Canada, having a different view in the way that politics and religion works, you know, helping kind of listeners see that, yes, we have our struggles in the U.S., but maybe looking at that from an outside perspective, you know, from someone who is kind of beyond the, the bounds of the United States. I, oh, gosh. See, I'm already thinking. I'm like, you lived with Francis. Frank Schaefer did a podcast with me not too long ago. Um, and Osgenis is one of my, I just love reading his, his works. So my mind is going a thousand miles. Let's stay focused. Aaron, stay <laughs> focused. Um, Ron, introductory thoughts, the work that you've done in kind of religion and politics, what drew you to, to writing on that? And where do you see kind of the importance in having those conversations? Well, first of all, not to think about politics is to become a victim of other people's decisions. Hmm. And then inevitably people, when they, um, are disturbed by the consequences of decisions, yet they've not participated in the process. Uh, their very cynicism itself becomes a part of the problem. And so the, um, <clears throat> I mean, there's various positions that Christians have taken in regards to politics. One is to retreat from it, which we would call mm -hmm. various forms of pietism is politics is of the world, it's corrupt, you can't trust people in either parties or ideologies. So retreat into one's um, private little ecclesial world. Uh, yeah. Milton, Milton once said in his Areopagitica, I cannot praise a cloistered virtue that never sallies forth. Um, and so this hmm. is one, but that leads to a thinning out and in one sense, uh, a trivializing of the faith uh, in which uh, Christianity is about a kingdom. The question is, what do we mean by that, though? Right. Um, because when people then move from an insulated withdrawal position to engaging the public square, the question becomes, do I identify with one party or another? In the United States, obviously, the two dominant ones are Republicans and Democrats. And is my faith to be equated with one or the other? Or does Christianity transcend partisan politics? And yet, mm. on the other hand, a person has to engage politically. Right. <laughs> so right. this this become the other is the uh, very dear friend of mine just died the other day, who was who wrote the biographies of Dorothy Day, Daniel Bergen, Thomas Merton, Jim Forrest. Jim goes back to the late fifties, early sixties, in which you get that. Christian anarchist left that was obviously protesting against the Vietnam War, American imperialism. Yeah. So this is a third position is I'm not going to belong to 
any party, I'm going to have this ideal vision of justice and peace of what the kingdom is about, say, coming out of the Beatitudes, but I can't trust formal parties. The dilemma, of course, is that it is formal parties that make um, decisions at a domestic and foreign policy level. Right. So all parties by their nature are imperfect. So then the question is, do I hold idealism so high that I'm not going to engage the real world? But engaging <laughs> the real world, how do I make decisions about what party I will imperfectly and in a critical way at least give minimal allegiance to, but not uncritical allegiance yeah. to? Um, we have in Canada, uh, which you don't have much in the United States, given our history, I've done about seven books on this. It's called uh, Red Toryism or High Toryism. My book that came out in 2016 is called The North American High Tory Tradition. But we have an older form of conservatism that antedates the Reformation and the thinking of even Burke and Locke and Smith and people huh. like this. Yeah. Uh, in which we have conservatism in Canada has a very high view of the state and the role of the state and society in working organically together to bring about the common good. So it's a very different understanding of conservatism, uh, given yeah. that Canada never broke from England in quite the same way the United States did with its strong Puritan pilgrim. Um, yeah. Canada doesn't have that history in quite the same way. And um, that break led to a break from a suspicion of the state and a suspicion of the historic church. In Canada, we do not have as strong a suspicion of the state or of, in Canada, say, Roman Catholicism or Anglicanism. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so it leads to a very different politics and relationship of church and state as well. But certainly one moves from spirituality or various forms of theology to and ecclesiology or the church to entering the public square. Um, there's so many levels and layers to that that one has to be careful. And the danger, as I said, is retreating into private virtue right. or cloistered virtues or excessively identifying with one party or another uncritically or doing anarchist protest advocacy politics. Right. Um, the danger is of, is of absolutizing any of the, those. And that's when you get into when the church gets co-opted yeah. by a party or by a state or even by protest politics. And it, uh, it, it it's much more difficult to think nimbly and almost existentially about politics than it is to uncritically genuflect to one interpretive approach to it. One of my great heroes in the faith has always been Erasmus. I've done a couple of books on Erasmus. Uh, he walked a middle way between eventually Tridentine Catholicism in the 16th century and then the schismatic forms of Protestantism that mm -hmm. emerged Lutheran, Reformed, Anabaptist. Um, and so, but he was a very judicious thinker that sort of called a wild bird. You couldn't cage him. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I don't, that's a bit of a primer on a big topic that, yeah. uh, that uh, you know, can go on world without end. Amen. Right. Right. And I think, I mean, I think probably the thing I want to hit on here a little bit more is this like co-opting, right? Like the statement that you said, there's this tendency within all three of those kind of realms and kind of retreating into pietism, into kind of just the, the utter co-opting with a political party and identity. 
and then this kind of anarchist uh, vision of of our of our religion as it relates to politics that tends to be, I think, the most problematic. Right. This this idea of any time that one happens uncritically. We are we're heading, even if it's uncritically and it comes to the common good or a good, even if it's that way and uncritically done, it's still going to lead to disaster. Right. And maybe help help our listeners kind of understand what do we mean by uncritically kind of in our evaluation with our political uh, alliances. Right. And how can we be more critical in any of those spheres that we might find ourselves in currently, whether it's the pietism, the co-opting or the anarchism? Well, I think, first of all, it's very important not only to be critical of the other, but to be self-critical, what we might call, when I was doing my doctoral studies, Hans-Gerr Gadamer was at McMaster, Mm -hmm. and his work on hermeneutics and the hermeneutical circle was very important. And um, the danger is always, um, it comes back to Jesus as the moat beam syndrome. The danger is always to find the... um, the beam in the other's eye, but not see the beam or the moat in our own eye. Yeah. And so criticism goes two ways. It's a double-edged sword uh, in that sense. And so a healthy, mature approach to even spirituality, theology, and politics is to not only be critical of the other, but to know how to turn uh, criticism on oneself, hopefully in a gentle, gracious, and kindly a kindly manner. So I think the first step is humility, uh, certainly a classical virtue um, in that sense. And um, to live in the tension also, because the human mind longs for certainty. It longs for answers. Yeah. Um, if you have no answers, you're on a floor that's constantly moving underneath you. <laughs> so right. there's nothing wrong with the longing for so as long as it's held in tension with uncertainty. So to use two Greek words, gnosis, which means just to know, not I'm not using it in the old early Christian sense of the spirit versus matter Gnosticism, but gnosis right. as to know. But agnosis is a dancing partner from which we get agnosticism. So how do we hold to get the tension between agnosis and no, no, um, gnosis, knowing and not knowing. Like in theology, we have the tension between the via positiva, where we say positive things about God, then the via negativa, where we negate right. what we said, or in the orthodox tradition, the apophatic, cataphatic, it's a tension. So in politics or epistemology, we live in the tension. If you go too far down the agnosticism route or skepticism, people become impotent. They become paralyzed human beings who don't believe in anything. And that becomes a new gnosis. That becomes a new absolute. Yeah, right. Yeah. So when agnosticism becomes the, the dogmatic position, it's just another certainty. I can't know anything. Um, but living in the tension is far more difficult, both theologically but also the relationship of theology to politics. Because uh, if one is to take seriously the paternoster or the Lord's prayer about your kingdom come, you will be done earth that is in heaven, is that we do have to think seriously about what the relationship is of the church to public life. Right. 
But then what that is becomes a question of judicious thinking and living in the tension of, you know, um, sort of that um, formal party politics, non-government politics, protest politics, retreat yeah. politics. And so each of those approaches usually have some truth in them, but they also have their blind spots. Right. And knowing how to ride those different horses and when to get off them to get to the destination you want to get to is that's the task, I think, of critical, judicious thinking that always must be done charitably and graciously. Yeah. Thinking of of Gadamer and hermeneutics, just kind of like this idea of like that self-critical evaluation kind of reminded me of an assignment in my hermeneutics courses that I've taught and when I do teach it. when we kind of dole out the passages, right? Like what passage are you going to study? And I let the students kind of choose and help them do a process of, you know, how do you choose a passage to study and the like the first part of the the hermeneutics, I actually ask them to write, uh, especially when it comes to a biblical kind of pastoral hermeneutics is I have them write the application, right? What does this passage mean? Which for most of the students kind of comes as a surprise that I would make them write First, what do you think this passage means? And I do that because by the end of the course, the end of the semester, I have them go back to that very first writing. And then I say, now that you've actually researched it, are you thinking the same way? And if you are, we might need some suspicion here. We might need to recognize that. I don't think that you, no offense, but I don't think that you knew what all these researchers had to research in order to get to the answer to, right? So, maybe we need to take a little bit of critical evaluation or suspicion in our, what we believe it to mean if we've done all this research and those two haven't actually applied together. Oh, very valuable. Yeah. The, um, well, you've interviewed Brad Jerzak. We and I published a book last year called the gospel according to Hermes intimations of Christianity amongst uh, in um, a Greek uh, myth, poetry and philosophy. But, um, Hermes was Zeus's son, and we get the word hermeneutics from Hermes, <laughs> uh, who was the messenger who brought the Olympian or Zeus's message to humans. Right. Now, if humans were um, open and sensitive to truth, um, Hermes would deliver the goods. But Hermes was also called the trickster. If a person's heart was hard or they lacked humility, the message presented to them would in fact uh, um, distort reality. And huh. Hermes, Hermes was always concerned with the interior sensitivity and openness and humility of the heart and the mind. And if that was not there, then the trickster Hermes would appear versus the true message from Zeus. So yeah, hermeneutics is one of those from Hermes, um, the son of Zeus, uh, is one of those issues that is really foundational to to so much because if we're not aware of our own finitude and fallibility of heart, mind, and soul and imagination, we can distort in our interpretations both our faith and then its application to the public realm. Yeah, it reminds me of another kind of story. George MacDonald in his in his book Lilith. One of the most beautiful passages is this passage where the, the main character has kind of fallen down. He's, he's on his back and he's looking up and he sees what looks like a, a book with butterfly wings, this kind of beautiful, this beautiful kind of representation. And, you know, in his heart, 
he said, all I'd long to do is to reach out and take hold and to grab it, to be able to kind of own it and control it. Right. I'm throwing in my own words here a little bit, my own interpretation. Right. And as he does, it seems as if the, the, this butterfly, this beautiful creature wing thing amalgam actually comes towards him and he reaches out and he grabs it. But once he grabs it, it dies. And he becomes so sorrowful that he tries to throw it back up in the air, hoping that by throwing it back in the air, it'll come back to life, but it just falls to the ground dead. And I, I take that passage with me in a lot of realms, especially in like in the public life and that kind of somewhat a theology of suspicion when it comes to our politics and going, if I hear what someone is saying and I immediately just say, yes, that's right. That's correct. I usually take a moment to go, wait a second. Why am I agreeing? Mm -hmm. Because is it just something I want or is it something that actually holds true or two can be two very different things. Right. And in the public life, we often just look, especially in our politics, just whatever we feel in the moment is the correct decision, right? Yeah. Ron, when you, as, as someone in, as a Canadian, someone who's kind of, again, that Renaissance person, you've, you've clearly, even in this conversation, you've brought in so many different kind of realms and spaces in a very constructive way. But for those of my listeners who are American and you from the outside in Canada are much nicer uh, neighbors, uh, much more congenial neighbors, when you when when kind of someone who studied politics looks into America and they see this two party system, they see this co-opting of evangelicalism with a specific party, you know, what do you what comes to mind and what do you think as a way forward for Americans who are dealing with this tension that we live in purely kind of in America in the moment? Well, I think first of all, to see when it's similar to saying Jesus is life when, you know, he was confronted as it were by the Sadducees or the Pharisees or the Zealots or the Herodians or the Essenes is, um, are you a Pharisee? Are you a Sadducee? Are you an Essene? Are you a Herodian? Are you a Zealot? Are you a Samaritan? Well, the danger is to shrink reality into a certain party or a tribe's interpretation Right. Of course, Jesus was none of the above. And so the danger is, and you have a wonderful model then in Jesus's life in which there was a temptation to belong to one of these theological ethnic interpretive tribes. Um, he transcended that clannishness or tribalism. And so when you come to politics, the danger, and of course, in the United States, which is very different from Canada, you're dominated by a two party system. We're not. We have we have a whole variety of parties that cross the spectrum from right to center to left. And so the choices are much richer, more nuanced. And I mean, we even have three parties that are constantly vying for leadership at federal and provincial levels, as well right. as, you know, parties which will I mean, never make it to power, but they provide. Uh, options. And we're also pushing Canada for proportional representation, which would alter first past the post voting as well. And so um, the danger is reducing the political vision to only two ideological tribes of which then those parties embody. And then people of faith saying, I've got to be this or I've got to be that. Well, who right. says you have to be this or you have to be that? I mean, that's a uh, 
that's an external pressure put on how we're interpreting our faith when it comes to the political realm. So Canada, and also in Canada, we tend not to be quite as confrontational. There's this, <laughs> and maybe it's that British sense of moderation and graciousness. And yes, I yeah. with the other, but I respect them as a person and uh, they're trying to do the best. And they're just as I am, I'm grappling as a finite, fallible human being and trying to make sense of my faith as it um, works itself out in a public manner in the area of the culture wars, of economics, of identity, of race, of gender, all these hot button issues. And so the Canadian context in one sense has a breadth to it. And uh, also the means we as at our best, of course, we can slip into some nasty stuff here too, but at our best, we recognize that politics is about honoring the other who differs with us. Uh, and yeah. the test of true charity and tolerance is how we respect those who see things different than us. So if you're on the left, how do you honor someone in the center of the right? If you're on the right, respecting those on the center and the left. and so there's it's it, we tend not to be quite as confrontational and polarization up. I mean, it does exist here, yeah. but not in quite the same way you get in the United States following the um, certainly the Trump uh, era. Uh, certainly, I mean, he didn't initiate that, but he embodies a way of engaging the other, which is very yeah. unhelpful and unhealthy for a person's soul, for a person's spirituality, for a way of doing faith and politics. And so, um, so yeah, we, we come from a very different history. Our origins are different from the United States. Our history here is different and the outworking of faith and politics here is quite different, both in the landscape, the options, political options, and then the way we deal with conflict tends to be a little more gracious and moderate rather than confrontational. Yeah. And, and what I, I mean, even in, even what you're saying, you know, I, I think there is a tendency for, for people, especially in the, in the States to immediately just go, here's how you fix it. Right. Here's the answer. But even in your answer, Ron, it's so beautifully articulated that it, that even that itself is not going to fix it. Right. In fact, that's part of the problem when we kind of point to a, here's the one issue and here's what you do to fix, it, but rather recognizing it's a really complicated, it's a complicated issue that really has a lot to do with humility and this kind of hermeneutic suspicion of your own desires, right? And the way that we're engaging with politics is such a complicated matter that one size fits all answers just don't work, right? No, there's in, in classical education, there's often the distinction Plato makes at Aristotle, the early church to it, between education as technique, a skill in which one person learns a particular um, level of abilities in which they fix a problem. Yeah. So, um, and then there's the humanities, which is called paideia as education. Now, if a person is only trained in technique, you learn a skill. So 
engineers learn to build bridges and we hope that the bridge is going to hold and they, right. they put the bridge up. You want to put a, a ship into space. There's skills you learn about gravity and engineering. Um, right. And so you, you accomplish a task um, and you fit. And so there's this tendency to then transfer technique as an education or technical skills into the humanities as if you can fix humans. Mm, yeah. Um, now, of course, this is why we have diverse parties, because if it was simple as a mathematical equation or you can fix it, we, there would only be one party. Right. Uh, and we would all agree on it. But when we deal with religion and politics and economics and aesthetics and philosophy, and there is diverse interpretations. And the dilemma then is wanting to import the technical approach rather than allowing, when you do education as paideia, you're dealing with the complex nature of humanity, which has both the dark and the light, the shadow and the best. And um, mm. so those who think they can fix it in a technical sense, inevitably do some terrible things in the name of fixing a problem to other people. Yeah. We've seen various political systems in the 20th century and before also, who think they can fix the human problem and they usually create multiple tragedies <laughs> right. and disasters right whereas if you start from the paideia perspective you just recognize the ambiguity the mystery the uncertainty of the human condition which doesn't mean you don't try and work to better it but you also realize their limitations and there's never going to be a perfect answer yeah and i think that's the really important space for so much so many of us maybe within kind of an evangelical mindset in the U S is that we are often, especially when it comes to our religion, given over overly certain facts, at least what we call facts. Right. I mean, we, we dictate that you can't question certain things, right. Especially within our own religious stance, you, you have to just agree you know, since we deal in those kind of ways that I think, especially for those who grew up in the church in the U S especially the evangelical church tend to bring that into their, pol their political situation. And everything seems very black and white from the start, right? It can't be this. It has to be that. And there's nothing else, nothing else to deal with it. And that's actually one of the reasons in, in my conversation, some podcasts to go with Frank, you know, it was even eye-opening for me to kind of see kind of the world that he was in, in in a very black and white world and how that for him has kind of changed, especially in something so, you know, kind of vitriolically uh, oppositional as abortion, yes. right? But to see how that kind of world kind of changed and shifted whenever you kind of stop seeing things so quickly as black and white in the only ways that they can be. Um yeah, I did. Uh, you may want to look at, we had Frankie up here probably 10 years ago and Brad Jerzak and I did an interview with Frank. You can look it up on podcasts just called the Labrie Legacy. Oh yeah. Yeah. But he, uh, yeah, that fascinated me because when I was at Labrie, I was very interested in how Frank Schaefer, um, Francis Schaefer um, interpreted Christian history. And for him, the, Christian renaissance of Erasmus, so the humanist renaissance was the evil, and the Calvinist <laughs> right. tradition was the good. And of course, right. in Calvinism, particularly 
confessional Cal Calvinism, which flows into conservative evangelical Christianity, there's certainty. This yeah. is what the Bible says. This is how it's to be interpreted. This is how it's to be applied. There's no place for mystery or ambiguity. Um, but this simple distinction when I was at Labrie and how um, uh, Francis Schaeffer interpreted Christian history is that the Reformed tradition was the true interpretation of the Bible and anything right. else was a deviation or a perversion. So Erasmus was the problem. Um, and so I've spent some lovely time at Erasmus's places in well, Basel Cathedral where he's finally buried. But in Erasmus, you get ambi I mean, this is the clash between Erasmus and Luther. Yeah. Luther insisted his read of Galatians and Romans was the only read. Uh, Erasmus dared to differ with him, so Luther would accuse him of not being biblical. Erasmus says, I know the Bible better than you do, and there's multiple <laughs> ways of reading the text. I did the translation, deconstructed Jerome's right. Vulgate, and I know the language is better than you, Luther. Um, and I've done all the annotations in various translations of the Gospels and the Epistles, but Luther wanted a reductionistic, a one-dimensional read of the text. Yeah. Erasmus said, no, when you when you heed the fathers and mothers on the church, this is what this father said. This is what this father said on these difficult texts. So allowed the sort of the hermeneutical polyphony. There are many ver voices in the church tradition right. that they grapple with complex passages. But the danger is always wanting a one dimensional or a single vision read of a text. And so you get that Lutheran reformed evangelical continuity, which does not exist in the best of the Renaissance humanists and the patristic mothers and fathers of the church in which they recognized there's mystery, there's uncertainty, there's ambiguity, which doesn't mean it's a free for all either. Yeah. It's funny that you say that because I, in my kind of educational journey, I did sit under a quite reformed church historian for some time in a course. And I do remember specifically a lecture on how Erasmus was wrong according to Luther and how Luther got it right. And it's so funny that you say that because even then I was like, I don't think that's correct, <laughs> but if that's how you want to interpret it, right? Yeah, there's a fine book came out a year ago or a couple of years ago by Michael Massing. It's, it's quite a tome, but it looks almost week by week, year by year of the Erasmus-Luther tensions and the huh. Of the Reformation, uh, and it's it's a powerful work, and it highlights clearly the belligerent nature of Luther when he confronted any opposition, and how he would rhetorically firehose them rather than engaging in meaningful dialogue with yeah. them. So this is a way you, if you don't want to deal with deeper thinking, you then caricature and distort your opponent or call them names, which is right. not a way of resolving anything. But it's this almost lust or addiction for certainty, which then um, prevents people from growing deeper uh, in their faith journey, because it's often the deeper we go, we get into these difficult issues of the, the mystics and the dark night and the cloud of unknowing and many of these very important elements. So it looks like my wife is knocking at the door. We have to head to the mountains, but to be, <laughs> but to be continued. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, and I hope my audience, they just see why I am so happy that I get to spend usually every, every other Thursday or so with you and a group of guys getting to learn from you. Um, we're going to uh, definitely have you back at some point. 
I appreciate you taking the time, Ron. And uh, for my audience, you've heard a lot of books that Ron has kind of mentioned. He's got so many. Please go. Uh, I would just encourage you to go look at his Wikipedia page and look at his 40 some books on there because there is something for everyone uh, that Ron has written. So, Ron, thanks again for being with me. Okay. Au revoir. Chat later. Bye.